Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursday and you get the same amount of mouthwash. Don't worry. It's just spread over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season, the mouthwash, the real future of work. Uh, This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking our assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're getting there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists and TikTok superstars. Check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. And I'm proud to say we're sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways. And to make your place of work a great place to work, just visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's all very cool. Um, Ecology also back. They're planting a tree for every live listener we get uh, in the space uh, in the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees at the moment, so we're not doing badly. If you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and start planting your forest. And because they're very cool, they spell it with so it's ecologi.com ecologi.com okay for those in the live space it's now time to share the space click the round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen and tell the world you found something good everyone that you get into the space means another tree in the world and i think you'll agree that's no bad thing um also if you want to ask a question just dm me or use the mouthwash show hashtag at the top just click on the blue one and you will pick it up from there Okay, on to tonight's guest. Joining me from London is UK's Dr. Eliza Philby, an expert consultant who specialises in general intelli- uh, generational intelligence. Um, what does that mean? She helps companies and services understand generational shifts within politics and society in the workplace to produce better outcomes. Eliza started out as an academic, uh, writing and teaching on the political upheavals of the 1980s. From there, she's published multiple books and began lecturing on the history of capitalism to Chinese millennials at the University of Renmin in Beijing. 
Um, she's now a consultant, amongst other things. Um, she works for the likes of Vice Media to the UK's Ministry of Defence, uh, along with entertainment companies and lots of other brands. Um, Eliza is a prolific speaker. She's spoken at the EU's Human Rights Forum on Teenagers and Technology, uh, the Financial Times CEO Forum of the Future of Work, uh, to the UK's House of Lords Select Committee on Intergenerational Unfairness. She's also a visiting lecturer at King's College London. She's a prolific podcaster, speaker, and non-exec director at the Mission Group. Welcome to Mouthwash Eliza. What did I miss out of your bio? I have two kids, Generation Alphas. <laughs> the Alphas. <laughs> that, take up, <laughs> that take up most of my time. But thank you for that. Gosh, that's a nice validation. You've done loads and <laughs> more power to you. Um, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? Oh, gosh, you know, I had a dream about school. One of those horrendous exam dreams, anxiety dreams that I hadn't read my uh, English text for my A-level English exam. And so the first thing I thought was, I'm not doing my A-levels anymore. It's fine. <laughs> that's that's the most that, honest that one I've had yet, I think. <laughs> We've had like, oh, my Don't dog was on my face. Dreams? Don't you get those anxiety dreams? Exam related uh, anxiety dreams. Maybe it's just me maybe but the one I always get is I always wake up and I'm falling you know but you're not obviously Ooh. falling you're in bed I don't know what that means but yeah um Gosh. that's some, that's someone I should have on I should have I should do a season of just like weird things that you want to know more about you know from like horoscopes to dreams and that thing maybe that's a series who knows but I have who, to say there's nothing more boring than hearing someone else describe the dream they had <laughs> 100% and that is the only podcast I recommend to anyone who ever says what's your favorite podcast it is the seven things that you shouldn't talk about from this American life it's an amazing podcast and I will link it after the show it's uh it's all about seven things that you just don't talk about so it's root talk your health dreams money uh, and there are other ones but it's really worth doing and then they basically challenge someone to find a story worthy of talking about in those categories it's amazing so yeah okay right sorry we're in danger of having too much fun um this season's all about the future of work. What's your current situation when it comes to work? Are you back at an office? Have you always been remote? I've always been remote, um, although I did spend quite a lot of the pandemic at a club that I was uh, a member of. But since the pandemic, I haven't uh, renewed my membership because actually I quite like working from home, seeing the kids and um, having that flexibility. When I want to go into town, um, I can. And when I don't, I don't. So I probably go into London twice a week, if that. I live in oh. South London, so it's not a massive, massive commute. But basically, mm. I really do work from home. Yeah. It's still an ask to get into London sometimes. I always feel even if you do in South London. <laughs> it's true. Um, over the last two or three years, what's been your um, biggest learning, professionally or personally speaking? Do you know, so I, I study research and write about generations, and I do that from a professional uh, perspective. But the last two years, I have very much done it from a personal perspective, because not only did I give birth to my second daughter, um, and I have a, also a son who's five, um, but I was also had my mother. I also had my mother living with us, so I was sandwiched between sort of catering and and serving and mothering my two children, these Gen Alphas, and then also looking after my mother, um, who actually has just left us and not. Uh, she she's moved. I mean, and, and it was <laughs> say that, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was fascinating because I talk so much about you know that multi generational. 
um, workplace and consumer space and the evolving nature of the family and how important that is and how we need to really empathise with different generations. But I did not extend that advice um, or take that advice by myself because actually I found it really difficult living with my mother at 40. And I found it really difficult when she... uh, would bestow her advice on how I should mother or or come into the, the kitchen and ask what was for dinner or leave her, she has a walking frame in the hallway, which I constantly was tripping over. I found it really difficult to take my own advice and really bridge that generational gap by empathising both with the young and the old. So it's been a professional uh, it's been a personal sort of experience which has had kind of professional ramifications really because I've really then tried to really tackle this notion of ageism mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. Um, a patronising tone that often um, is at the root of conversations between the generations and realising how difficult it is. And I think ageism is one of those forces which is very corrosive and pervasive in the workplace it's almost like the last acceptable prejudice and the key thing is is that it goes both ways right so it's the young patronizing the old as much as the old patronizing the young and so it's and yet it's one of the, the prejudices that we all experience and have personal relation to because you know in a sense if we're talking about racial prejudice you know we we don't have that cross experience. Whereas when we're talking about ageism, we all were young once and we all get old. So we should technically be more empathetic to different generations, but we're not, you know, in the workplace, um, employees are much more likely to be friends with someone of a different race, gender, disability or sexuality than they are to be friends with someone of a different generation. So the generation oh. gap in the workplace is real. And and I think it, it it's it's exacerbated by this new shift into hybrid working. Mm. Um, let's talk about the workplace for a sec. There are four generations now in the workplace. Is that right? So you've got Gen. Uh, well, talk us through which ones they are. I'm talking alphas. Yeah, I mean, in the most organisations, you have four. So you have baby boomers still clinging on to power, very much so. Those mm. born in the aftermath of the Second World War up until 1965. I mean, these these chronological brackets are quite arbitrary i think but that's the kind of post-war baby boom um and then and and then you have gen x and that's those that born from 19 mid 1960s right to 1980 um and then you have the millennials obviously those born from 1981 to 1996 and then the new kids on the block which are the gen zers you know those that can't remember the 20th century and that's those really born after 1997 through to 2010 there is another generation generation alpha the kids of millennials those under 10s now but they are not obviously um unless they're extremely bright not in the workplace so we don't or unlucky worry about yeah. them, <laughs> or unlucky yeah Dear Lord, right. There are parts of the world where Generation Alpha are working depressingly. Oh, God, yes. Um, right, okay, small hands, yes, all right. So um, you mentioned that we've generational groupings, we don't sort of like like them. So why are they still around? Why do, why do we use them? Well, I think it, they, they emerged and they originate um, and the force of them was really felt in the kind of golden age of advertising. 
you know, where you segment your audience by age and, and by gender and geography and quite often economic status and educational status. They are a really good way, a, a, a starting point, if you like, of analysing your workforce, of mm-hmm. analysing society. Um, but we need to distinguish between what is, you know, in between those kind of really lazy unhelpful headlines like millennials are all lazy entitled and all of that kind of stuff and what is it that's genuinely different from how these younger generations are thinking communicating expecting in the workplace because there are genuine differences and when I talk about generational change what I'm basically talking about is understanding firstly we are all a product of our time And it's a really simple concept, but actually really difficult to accept. You know, you cannot say that this is how, you know, if you, this is how things have always been, because it's not. You cannot say, I think young people act like this because that's how I acted. If you Mm -hmm. talk like that, you're actually just in denial of change. And so when you're talking about generational change, the second thing you're talking about is basically about how business the workplace, society at large is evolving. And unless you understand that evolution, your business has a sell-by date. Your business is catering to certain demographics and it's usually the the, the demographics that are in power at that time. So it's about actually just understanding how society is changing. And that doesn't mean going all Gen Zers have an attention span of eight seconds. Mm. That's not helpful. It's not about saying, you know, all millennials, um, you know, like avocado on toast. It's that's not helpful. What is helpful is to understand, Okay, millennials came of age during um, time of the financial crisis. So what became really expensive as they came uh, came of age? Right. Housing, healthcare, education, all those kind of big ticket items and now childcare. Now they have kids. What became cheap when they came of age? Right. Okay, technology, um, eating out and travel arguably the three things that are associated with the millennial demographic now Mm. who do millennials rely on for those big ticket items if they can health housing education now even childcare, the bank of mum and dad okay so now we've got within the millennial demographic a clear distinction between those that are the benefactors of the inheritance economy and those that are not So the division within the millennial uh, demographic between those that have a degree and those that don't, they were the generation that were encouraged to get a degree and, by the way, pay um, ever more um, for it. Mm -hmm. But also between those that rely on the bank of mum and dad and those that can't. And then you think, okay, what else is distinct about millennials is that you're seeing them doing the big adulting things on average about eight years later than their parents did. So whether it's um, having kids leaving home, finishing education, financial independence from your parents or getting married. Many of them are not even doing those. They've lost their status, but many of them are doing them later. So those traditional ways in which you incentivize workers through status, high pay, rewards, security, do not work for millennials in the early stages of their life because they are not even making those decisions on which those incentives are based. So you see, by unpicking the history of that generation you actually are understanding where they're coming from why they act why they do and also understanding the context of their time 
And it's so much easier, therefore, to empathize with them rather than patronize them and understand that evolution of change. And if you're talking about Gen Z, you could equally reflect on the fact that on average, um, the majority of Gen Zers have had a smartphone in their pocket since they were 13. And over 70 percent of them have made their own pocket money and not reliant on mum and dad. So already you've got a generation that has that is seeing wages in very different ways and mm. who are almost expectant that their lives will contain multiple streams of revenue. And that's also the generation of paranoid parenting, helicopter parenting. So we can talk about a generation that needs lots of attention and that is hyper-individualistic. Yeah, well, who do you blame for that? <laughs> their parents, <laughs> you! <laughs> so, you know, and it isn't individualism didn't start with Gen Z, but you've seen that is the generation in particular that had three things that have heightened their sense of self, which is social media, not a smartphone, specifically social media. So they've been building their brand since they were early teens. Mm. And that's been a fluid identity, by the way. They're um, smaller families, meaning actually more parental attention. Parents of Gen Zers spent more time with their kids than parents did in the 1950s or 1970s. Yeah. So you've got individual individualized bespoke parenting tailored to that child and then you've got an education culture which is maybe sink or swim but is actually about entirely driven towards the individual there's no teamwork in education sport is probably the only area there is yeah i mean the only competition is the ladder isn't it of like almost in america they have it don't they valedictorian you sort of know what number you came in but over here it's very much like you achieve and you know you know if you're top of the class but probably nothing else yeah, and it's it's not about encouraging working with others. It's actually about who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? Who's serving me? How do I get there? Mm, yeah. Um, wow, okay, that was a lot oh, straight away. What, let's get the pandemic question out of the way. How's it affected generational understanding? Do you think it's highlighted issues or helped fix them by not being around so much? So I think we need to think and remember that the pandemic was an age discriminate disease which affected the different generations differently. And I think, you know, it's, if you're talking about baby boomers, they're perhaps the generation that felt physically vulnerable for the first time. Yeah. Um, they were the generation that were, ne you know, never going to grow old. So I, I know for, from my own experience, baby boomers in my life actually were in denial a lot of the time. But they also arguably in a work context had potentially the space, potentially um, a, a non-working wife, um, potentially ha obviously had children that were old enough to look after themselves, so no homeschooling. So in a way, they yeah. had quite a nice experience, although you've seen a lot of baby boomers retire um, in the way, um, certainly the first wave of the Great Resignation. Then you had Gen Xs, and I think Gen Xs, Gen X women are the, the sub-category um, that are most likely to say the pandemic was a negative experience. And they, because they are the squeezed generation, many of them having to endure the hell that was homeschooling, but also having to look after, in many instances, elderly parents. And so whilst obviously managing all of that with their work responsibilities. So Gen Xers, I think, really, um, obviously, a lot of them in managerial positions really struggled with, with those caring responsibilities um, chimed with their work responsibilities. And then you had, um, but also Gen X are the generation that were most um, well attuned to remote working and transitioned 
um, in their view, the best of all the generations. Then you have millennials, and let's not forget that millennials are no longer young. Um, most How dare of millenn- you? Well, I'm sorry, I, I say that with a heavy heart because I'm a millennial myself. But the issue, of course, was that majority of millennials did not endure the pandemic lockdowns in small flats in flat shares with their mates they did it was in small flats with small kids and um anyone who's had a you know (laughs) a toddler running around um you know and and with and just having that inability to go out when you can or meet other kids and just all of that was hell for millennials but i also think that millennial dads in particular really saw and experienced a period and a time with their kids that they do not want to um, um, let go of. So if you look at all that, which generation, which subcategory enjoyed the pandemic the most, it was millennial dads. And I think they're going to really pioneer and hopefully really push forward and step up reasserting parental rights in the workplace and 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 flex the flexibility that comes with that Mm. um and then you've got a gen z and you know most most gen z is um their main experience the majority of their understanding of work comes from the pandemic and one uh, um, client i was working for a couple of days ago said to me i couldn't believe it these digital natives these 20-somethings, they were the ones that never switched their camera on. And, that, and he was really surprised by this. And I was like, well, you've got to remember that these kids see the curation of their social media identities as something that is, is, is all about controlling the image, whereas Zoom is like this horrible, spontaneous, <laughs> um, arduous, lengthy... Um, unairbrushed um, experience that they actually are much more comfortable doing with the camera off. And I know how difficult and challenging that can be in the workplace, but I think we need to understand that these digital native kids actually prize more than any any other generation that face-to-face, in real life, human contact. But they also, the least likely to have a home office, many of them were not working from home they were working from their beds because they didn't have the space for a desk in their bedrooms um, many of them returned home so and, and many found that their mental health you know um really really suffered and i think the pandemic as a whole was a real test of every employer their mm-hmm. obligations to individual employees regardless of their generation but I think it also really highlighted the different needs of their employees and um, what um, in, is needed in terms of care, in terms of obligations, in terms of support, in terms of flexibility. But overall, I would say one of the things that the pandemic did was and was give everyone autonomy over their time, over their health in many respects. Um, gave people autonomy of obviously where and how they worked. And although people in many companies worked and were the most productive ever, um, and profits, you know, particularly in in the service economy, you know, went berserk during 2020. But you're seeing the hangover of that now. 
And I think so for a lot of people during a time during the pandemic where the true workers, the people that kept the world going, the dustbin men, the nurses, the farmers, that was what was really valuable work to society in a crisis. And then people would look at what they were doing. And I think it did trigger a a reflection, a pondering, a, a, a sense of, you know, what is my purpose? And people are asking questions of themselves and their work and their career in a way that they were not forced to before. I um, 100% agree. Mm. I think that's one of the biggest sort of takeaways of the pandemic is that it's given people a moment of almost reset, at least reassessment. Let's start with that reassessment. And a lot of them said, like, I want out, I want out. And um, it's just one of those areas where I think that, you know, a lot can sort of change in a in a very, very quick moment. <laughs> but uh do you know Sorry, the thing? Well, just one of the things I've said that to a lot of companies and they can't understand why it's happening because they felt they really pulled out all the stops during the crisis. And it makes me think of the Second World War because it was a warlike experience. And, you know, for a long time, we endured these really constringent conditions. And we had, yes, companies helping us in various ways to ease the pain, but essentially the fallout is happening now. It never happens during the war, you know? And mm. and, and so it, it, it's no surprise to me that we are seeing those questions being answered now and companies having to answer them now. And that's where the conversation has moved to. I definitely see a lot of interesting conversations happening. I'm see uh, so spoke earlier in the season with Tim uh, Oldman from the Leesman Index, and he said mm. there was an interesting inflection point being seen at the moment. So whereas before it was uh, younger people who wanted to go back to the office because, like you say, they didn't have great spaces or they were living with six people and that sort of thing, um, they've had that period where they've sort of gone back to the office and they've found that a lot of people uh, are now bouncing back. So it's now the older people that want to sort of go back to the office, whereas before they were they were finding their cushy sort of jobs. He didn't have an answer on why that that data was sort of coming across. Um, or why the inflection point was sort of happening. Um, you're doing a big uh, study at the moment, aren't you, which is all to do with remote working. Um, are you seeing anything, well, it's more, more about managing a multi-generational workforce in an era of hybrid working. Um, are you seeing any early findings that might sort of explain that? Um, yes, I think basically what's happening is that, um, and I've heard exactly the same on an anecdotal level and seen it in the data as well, is that young people are realising as, you know, as things open up again and they are forming new relationships, they're realising the learning potential of the office, they're realising the benefits of the office. It's, you know, as soon it's a bit like exercise, isn't it? You don't really want to go, but you know it's good for you. And I think that whereas inevitably you know, the mum of two in her early 40s is thinking, I've done that. I don't want to go back. I don't need that. I don't want to go back. Mm. I've been asking for workplace flexibility for the last six years and I'm not giving up this autonomy. So I think that it's, we all know that that workplace learning for the first 10 years of your working life is absolutely essential to gain the expertise, the relationships, the networks, um, the experiences, the learning through osmosis, the direct learning, those social relationships has to have to be there. And 
I think that it's no surprise to me that it's actually now older workers that are pushing for um, remote working. And, yeah. I, and there is a gender bias as well. It's more women than men. Definitely. I spoke with um, the Harvard professor uh, last week about the gender pay gap and gender in the workplace. And to say that I was schooled would be an understatement, I think, but it's an entertaining listen I've been told by my mother. Um, so, yes. Um, when, uh, right, our age and identity uh, are linked, right? Thanks to media, education, boxes on forms, technology, um, societal forces. We are shaped by our experiences to a degree. How much is able to change, though? Those are, you know, these are quite ingrown or sort of early experienced elements. Is it possible to change, you know, something so ingrained in a lot of corporate cultures? Um. I think companies have got a real issue and a real dilemma because over the last 30 years, there's been undeniably an erosion and a breakdown of that relationship between employer and employee. And you are seeing, um, and that's been a good thing and a bad thing, by the way, it's made workers more agile and perhaps also um, more diverse and, um, more um, possibly fulfilled, but it's also taken away a lot of the security, a lot of the loyalty, um, and lots of that reciprocal obligations that one may have to the company and even to their smaller teams. And it's what companies themselves have tried to do in the last 20 years is replace it with something called culture. And I think there's lots of good things about corporate culture, but there's also lots Mm. of meaningless things about corporate culture. And I think we are facing a very different uh, 15 to 20 years. So if you look at Gen Z, as I said earlier on, they have grown up thinking in a much more agile way about their education. They don't just get it from school. They get it from YouTube about money. They don't just get it from selling secondhand clothes. They can also have, you know, online tutoring as well. They are thinking very differently about their careers. They don't just want to have one career. They maybe will have two or three or four or five. So you've got a generation that is almost being groomed to think much more agile, uh, in a much more agile way about what their career looks like. And before we say, you know, five different careers within a across one working life that sounds bizarre well it you know I've had three different distinct careers and I'm 40 so Mm. do genuinely think it's possible that you're looking at a generation now that is not going to be working in one uh, certainly one company their entire life certainly not even you know one career their entire lives but a much more dynamic multi-stage career And then you've also got people's caring responsibilities changing massively over the next 50 years because we're heading into an aging society. So as I said earlier on, we've got women having, because of, and this is particularly true of, of corporate culture, but women have been encouraged, professional women have been encouraged to be really efficient in their baby making. So if you can pop out twins, that's great for corporate life and it's probably really good for your career but ideally we want you to pop them out in your mid-30s when you've come to some sort of position of managerial level we want you to pop them out as quickly as in as closely together as as you can and then almost be in denial of your motherhood and childcare responsibilities afterwards so it's it's like we have you know and and 
uh, we have encouraged women to think about baby making in a certain way that will suit their careers. And we all know, by the way, the career cycle and the fertility cycle is at complete odds, which is why there's so many women having so much, so many issues around fertility. And that has not been helped by um, companies. But equally, we have got moving forward millennial couples who are not just in male breadwinner um, households like their parents were, but in dual income households where both careers are having to be managed with quite often two kids. And that's a very different dynamic. So it's no wonder that just as women have stepped up in the professional sphere, so millennial dads are stepping stepping up in the domestic sphere. And that needs to be reflective in company culture and policy. Paternity leave, I think, should be um, an obligation. It should be massively extended. And dads should be able to demonstrate their parental responsibilities as confidently in the workplace as mothers. But then you've got looking after our parents because the responsibility that we have looking after our preschool children is actually quite a short amount of time. Looking after parents could be a 30-year job. And it's not just parents who are elderly, it's parents with illnesses and the financial obligations that come with that. And that's actually a much more, and I should speak, I I should say I speak from personal experience here, much more challenging, challenging experience that will really affect your working life. Mm. So I think our caring responsibilities are expanding. Our careers and how we view them are fundamentally changing. I think retirement is about to be disrupted you're already seeing boomers gen x's thinking about um maybe staying in the workplace or going freelance Mm -hmm. but certainly to to stay working and it's been estimated that millennials quite likely will have to work up until their mid-70s potentially their 80 well we are living longer so maybe that makes sense and many of us are working longer out of self-fulfillment rather than financial need, although that is obviously for, for um, certain groups an absolute um, truth. Yeah. So you've got, therefore, this real dichotomy where young talent is cheap and that's where all the learning and development happens. But actually, you've got a swelling population of old people who are not developed, by the way, who are not trained, who are not agile, and are going to either be made redundant or go freelance. And in a sense, the concentration should really be on how do you deal with an aging society in the workforce? Because it's a massive challenge and no one's talking about it. And Mm. it's as fundamental a shift as how do we deal with the mass entry of women in the professionalized workplace? And look how much change has happened there. Mm. So I just think, you know, hybrid office home is all important but actually what we're talking i think are bigger shifts in society that are happening um in terms of the family in terms of how people are working how people are thinking about work which companies i i don't believe um are really understanding and getting to grips with and i think that hopefully i do see signs of optimism here that the pandemic may have shifted people's understanding of the work workplace needing to be more human we've spent the last 30 years trying to turn humans into robots well let's turn you know and now we're talking about turning robots into humans let's think about how we can humanize the workplace 
Yeah. Well, you were talking, I was thinking of Jane Evans's um, WPP sort of uh, matchup where essentially she caught out the CEO on Twitter saying something um, he shouldn't have. Um, and she said, well, let's fix it. And then they got together and they've essentially retrained, I think it's 40 midlife uh, women who are now doing digital marketing. So I, I sort of see these green shoots for places, but I 100% don't think that they're enough. Uh, but it is of interest. Just as well, well, when you were talking, I was sort of thinking, good God, how do companies actually know about these things? And how do they go about educating their workforce saying like, hey, we're not going to point fingers and say Doris is, you know, feeling it and that she's going to be off soon and she's coping with her mother and that sort of thing. But how do companies like grapple with those issues that need to sort of be filtered down so that everyone can start talking and working together better? So I think a lot of this um, is done in small teams. I'm quite sceptical of kind of, one size fits all HR policies. Yeah. Because even on flexible working, it doesn't work. I know one company that has stipulated you have to be in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And what's happened over the course of three months that that's been a policy in place is it's sort of been true for most people. And then other people, quite often um, higher members of the team, are given exceptions. Yeah. And the whole thing is falling apart. Now, if those policies were operated on a small team basis what you would get there is the reciprocal responsibility that people felt towards each other and that you can only get in small teams it's a bit you know it's the difference between talking about the obligations you feel to the family that you're in as opposed to the state and right. it's the level of personalization and connection that you feel with those small teams and the number one reason why people leave jobs are their managers and I think their obligation yeah. for managers in a hybrid era is huge I don't mean leadership I mean management and I think it's incredibly um, challenging to companies to think about how they build those small teams and how managers have the emotional intelligence the capacity the trust to to facilitate those conversations so everyone can feel they can come up to them and say you know, I've got my mother living with me and she's got Alzheimer's and quite often she goes for a walk randomly and gets lost and I have to be home mm -hmm. to be with her. You know, those kinds of things are very difficult and depersonalised if you have to go, you know, to HR. Now, quite often, you know, people listening will go, of course, I can do that. I, I work in small teams. But quite often the power and the policy comes on, upon high. So you may have a good manager, but do they have any power? Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because HR is one of those bastions where it's meant to be for the people, human. Um, but it, 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 in essence, and lots of people have said it this season, it, it's for the company and people should know that they're, they're going to get the best outcomes for the company. So I think it definitely is an interesting area. And I don't think there's any simple answer. And I think every company is different to your point. It, it comes to a, an area where it's, Everybody has to be treated equally, legally, and all of that sort of stuff, although we know that there's gender pay gaps and that. It, mm. It's one of those areas where it's it's easy to say things to do that companies should do, but the realities of them feel quite sort of sticky. Um, I wonder... But I think... I hmm. Sorry, just to interrupt. I think it can start really small. Like, for example, the importance of knowing not just the kids' names of, of you know, um, within your teams, but... Um, 
but to ask about, you know, Gen Zers, a lot of them have been living at home. Who are their parents? Get to know the parents. You know, the, the CEO of Pepsi used to write to all the parents of her new recruits because she realized that quite often they were instrumental in the decision. And uh, you've got a generation of Gen Zers um, who have really looked to mom and dad more than as much as their peers, I should say, for validation. And, um, you know, that's why LinkedIn established um, Take Your Parents to Work Day. Um, because you've got this real sort of intergenerational involvement and investment in young people's careers. So I would suggest, you know, understanding the individual um, and all in their rich complexity is not something that requires you to, you know, get a sign off from HR. That's just actually being human and, mm. and introducing because we've spent the last three um, it's two years. I keep thinking it's three, but bringing it feels working, like four. <laughs> it feels like a decade. Bringing the home, uh, bring sorry, bringing the work into the home, and now we need to bring the home into the work. I think so. Oh, interesting. Um, what what role do you think technology has to play in all of this? Like bringing the generations together. I, I think of tools like Grammarly, and I think Twitter even makes suggestions if you use a questionable term. Um, it got me thinking, though: how much does technology, you know, get to help us in the future? Are we going to have generational term identification quotas that managers are passed after tools scan what you've typed last month? Like, where do you think technology is going to save the generation or make the gap even wider? Um, so I think that um, there are some really cool VR experiences that you can do, like what it was like to be young in the 1960s, what it was like to be young in the 1990s, that kind of thing. And, and VR actually is a really effective tool of creating empathy and generational empathy. So All I right. think I see really cool things there of, of you know, let, let, let tech do give the lecture that you would have received from your six-year-old colleague on what the workplace was like back back in the day. Um, <laughs> but more than that, I think you are obviously seeing a period where Silicon Valley are putting their brains together to try and work out how tech facilitates collaboration in the hybrid um, era. And I think that at the moment... We're all very proud of ourselves for going remote, but the technology is appalling. It's awful. It does not facilitate collaboration. It does not facilitate boundaries. Uh, it does not facilitate belonging. You know, people have a greater sense of belonging to, to a um, video app um, platform than they do, you know, Microsoft Teams or Zoom, than they do to their actual uh, company. In a sense, you know, we are spending more engaging with that platform than we are actually engaging with our with our company. How can technology facilitate um, or or ape and mirror real life collaboration and learning? And the closer it gets to that, the more it will help alleviate and break down the generational gaps. I obviously will caveat all of that and saying that for digital native Gen Zers, there's a lot of frustration with the technology in the workplace because it's not as sophisticated or slick as the technology in the palm of their hand. Yeah. And quite often you have a generation coming to the workplace, and this is a new thing, by the way, a generation coming to the workplace that have a better tech understanding than the people that are training them. 
And so that is a real cause of tension. And I don't see that being alleviated anytime soon. But I also think that, again, going back to our earlier point about training older people, we have to make sure that we do not let older people in the workplace really fall behind and to keep them agile, engaged workers because they could be with you for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. And what's more, if you're leaning too heavily on youth, you will lack that experience of age. You need that. And I've worked with several tech companies that have deliberately gone about diversifying their employees because they recognize that they didn't have anyone, for example, who remember the dot-com bubble, who have lived experience of the evolution of technology as a sector. You know, all these kind of really like sexy startup um, millennials who are just thinking this is all great, let's ride this wave. But actually you need that experience. You need people that have a sense of history because they will give you a grounding. So in order to do that, you have to help them keep in touch with the evolution of tools in the workplace as well. And I think that's really important. But by the way, it's really expensive. And I think that we are heading towards um, a stage where and a moment in the workplace where age, your age, does not determine your stage or your hierarchy. So now, obviously, if you're young, you're a junior. Well, how about people become apprentices at 60? You know, mm. How about we really break down that barrier of, of age, meaning just, you know, at the top of the tree? Because that's, I think, how you really, you create an agile, ever learning, always innovating workforce, is actually breaking down that rigidity of your age, determining where you sit on the hierarchy. Mm. No, definitely. I think that's an important one. Um, I'm excited to interview a company called Hundo um, later on in the season. They're helping young people build careers and new business models in the metaverse. Um, what's your take on the metaverse and the future world of work? Obviously, you, you seem very gung-ho on VR being an emotional sort of state. The, the, the reason why I'm asking this question, everyone, is because what I see at the moment is not something I'm running towards. I don't want to slap on a headset and go into four walls that I've tried to escape for the last three years. I'm trying to sort of see what people think the world of work is sort of going to mean in the metaverse, um, but also outside of it. Well, at the moment, WFF, um, H means working from home, but it could very soon mean working from headset. And I think um, there's great, look, I'm, I'm sort of a cynical optimist, really. There's great opportunities in um, the metaverse. There's great um, creativity and um, opportunity in, in all of that. But I think we need to realise that actually we've got a generation that have grown up with a smartphone in their hands. And what do they prize more than anything else is face-to-face -face communication. Now their communication skills have been stunted um, and they do not have, I do believe, the, the same confidence when it comes to one-on-one -on -one communication than perhaps younger generations have mm. had. And I saw that myself at university, but you know, they were students paying fees who expected the technological infrastructure to be there 
that was a given. That wasn't a kind of add-on, thank you very much, this is amazing service. This is like a given, thank you very much. What they really wanted and what was proven investment and their nine grand a year they were paying was could they knock on my door and did I know their name? And that's what they want. And it's striking that you're seeing that also in the workplace is they want that attention. They want that, okay, I feel invested in. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I have a relationship with this person. And that really, I would argue, only comes on a face-to-face um, level. Yeah, I'm intrigued with where the metaverse goes for the world of work. I think there's going to be a lot of road bumps moving forward. Certainly the updated version of how people can create in that space definitely feels a lot more accessible to a lot more age uh, brackets, however you want to say it, you know, old, younger and that sort of thing. So I, I feel the the potential is there. I hope the PR doesn't ruin it. That's my only thing at the, mo- at the but moment. Then, but it all looks a bit bland. I mean, it all does look a bit like Sims. You I know? agree. And, and um, Zuckerberg putting his outfit on, just you know, announcing Meta, and I just thought, I just kind of thought, oh gosh, this all looks hell. But then I'm also like, great, I don't have to get dressed. Hello, bring it on. Let me do my <laughs> virtual makeup. Um, so I'm all for that because any woman listening will know it's so much effort. <laughs> and um i'm loving the fact that i haven't worn a bra for two years nor heels you know that's just there has been a real liberation the there. benefits are and that will many. be un- <laughs> um you know meta- metaverse kills bras i mean exactly. metaverse wow. will replace millennials as wow. killing everything and there there are some headlines i dare say we're going to be seeing in the next few don't years. you think yeah I really uh, well I, I there's going to be impacts that's for sure that's for sure <laughs> Um, right, we are um, at that time where we do Desert Island Tweets, part of Mouthwash, where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So um, for the live listeners, turn your attention to the uh, nest, which is the bit up the top, and you'll see uh, a tweet from George Mack. And if you want to follow him, it's at George underscore Mac, or it might be two underscores. I'm not sure. Check either way. Um, it says 10 thoughts on predicting future trends. And I'll read the first one and then, Eliza, if you can tell me why you picked it. Uh, 10 thoughts on predicting future trends written by George Mack. If it's a talking point on Reddit, you're probably early. If it's a talking point on LinkedIn, you're definitely late. If you're over the age of 25, assume your initial reactions to new trends are wrong. If you're, if the media is building something or someone up, be ready for them to tear it down. Why did you pick this? They've got seven more. Why did you pick this one? <laughs> it's a really good thread. And I think it speaks to to my inherent belief that a lot of stuff that futurologists talk about is 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 difficult to consume because they're never held to account (laughs) no one goes up to a futurologist and you know and goes look you said this 10 years ago that there would be you know flying cars and and uh, we'd all be eating um air protein but no we're not we're still we're still eating meat and we're still (laughs) driving our voxel vectors you know like it's Futurologists are never held to account. And I think this is just a really wonderful thread that grounds um, any futurologist that's seeking to or selling the future. Um, but I particularly like that one about Reddit and LinkedIn. Yeah. Because I think the, 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 the cultures of different social media platforms fascinates me. So the kinds of things I can say on LinkedIn um, and everyone go, wow, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. That is groundbreaking. And then you put it on Twitter and it gets it's met with a deathly silence. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even go near Reddit. I, I'm, too, I'm too shy. But it's equally fascinating on TikTok, you know, what, what flies um, mm. on, on these social platforms um, and what's seen as useful or revelatory information is really obviously dependent on the audience, but it's just fascinating to test it out on these different social media platforms. So I recommend the thread and and um, just for that sort of lovely grounding that it gives us all when we're thinking about the future. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, that is a wrap on another episode of season four of Mouthwash. My thanks to Dr. Eliza Philby for making generations clearer and helpful. Um, follow Eliza on Twitter. Um, find out more about Eliza over at elizafilby.com and make sure you listen to her podcast. It's called It's All Relative Wherever Good Podcasts Are Found. Um, any final words of advice for listeners, Eliza? Yeah, one thing I do do is a fortnightly newsletter, which is trying to unpick the societal shifts that is going to shape politics, work, finances and family in the next sort of 20 years and that's like you know who are gen alpha right through to i'm writing an article right now about what will gen x's be like when they're old how are retirement villages going to be reconfigured what you know how are they going to ever retire are they going to you know get rid of their tattoos as they you know get into their 80s what kinds of things that we're going to be thinking about when we think about gen x's as really old people and I'm quite intrigued by that. So do subscribe to my fortnightly newsletter. There's an exclusive article that, that appears in that newsletter. And um, yeah, follow me on socials. Thank brilliant. you. Brilliant. And is that, you, they can get the newsletter at Eliza Philby, right? Dot com. That's right. Yeah, That's brilliant. Right. Excellent. Okay. Um, up next on Mouthwash is the mighty live guru, Jake Ward. He works for Groovy Gecko, which is a company that Meta turned to when they want to know about all things video or broadcast the Zuck live. Um, I want to find out where things are going with events, video conferencing and the like. So we're speaking about, you know, stuff that impacts billions of people's lives daily. Thanks to the pandemic. And there are big changes afoot. So I urge you to tune into that one. Um, I'm certainly going to be asking some big questions of him. Um, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text. So you never miss a minute of upcoming seasons of Mouthwash. And we are produced by Suze and the big team at Big Tent Media. Use them for all your audio needs. As always, everything mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. And I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I'm Paul Armstrong, this is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.